It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the hour of doom and bloom. Yes, Nurse Amy is still at her mystical warehouse of wonder today, packing kits and personal protection supplies. We actually have gotten a few personal protection items in from some of our suppliers, and we have been working fast and furious to get them out to you folks. People have ordered our new color edition, by the way, of Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide from our website should know that we are now up to date. So if you haven't gotten yours yet, it is in the mail unless you just ordered this morning. We've also donated some extra boot covers and some other items to the local hospital down here. Hopefully they'll put them to good use. And as for Amy, fear not, you'll be hearing from the goddess, but for now you have to deal with the geezer. And with that, friends and neighbors, welcome to Doom and Bloom's Survival Medicine Podcast, a pod of prescience in a panicked world. I'm Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, founder of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, three years running, doomandbloom.net. We are indeed your source for both medical education and an entire line of the best medical kits and supplies on the interweb. Now, some of the stuff you hear on the show is going to be outside the conventional medical wisdom. It'll be just our opinions. We would like to keep our active medical licenses, though. So I got to tell you that all information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. They don't represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. In other words, don't listen to the whispers of an old Weisenheimer. It's just the ramblings of a codger well into his second childhood. That's me. And here I am just drooling on my shoes. But happy to talk to you. Happy to be anywhere, actually, at this point. (laughs) Now, in the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, I'll tell you, these shortages that we've had of personal protection equipment have been a major issue for medical workers and home caregivers. I'll tell you, even the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recognize the problem. They've published guideline for the ex- guidelines for the extensive use and limited reuse of disposable face masks and other materials. That would have been heresy in the old days. You've got to throw away that face mask as soon as you've used it. But now, apparently, it doesn't seem to be necessarily the case. And certainly out of, well, just necessity, well, we've been making cloth covers, face coverings, using bandanas and doing all sorts of stuff. Things that the, well, the CDC would have told you don't work at all in, I guess, just a month ago or so. And now they are recommending that, indeed, that you use them anytime you're out in public. So, very interesting how things have changed with regards to that. But I do believe that they do give you some support and some protection. It's just a matter of avoiding those large respiratory droplets from people that are infected. And the problem is that people that are asymptomatic and have COVID-19 still can pass the disease, apparently, even the asymptomatic folks. So, well, if you're out there, you're out in public for one reason or another, make sure you have your face covering. And if you have been a prepper for long enough, you certainly have a number of face masks, I hope, in your medical preps. That's very, very important. I recently wrote about a Chinese study that evaluated different ways to disinfect used N95 masks. 
They concluded that oven dry heat at 70 degrees Celsius, about 160 degrees Fahrenheit, for about 30 minutes maintained the physical integrity of the mask, didn't deform it in other words, as well as the 95% filtration efficiency. Other sources agree that this works, and it's certainly an option, although recently we've seen some experts say not to use a kitchen oven. Now, I don't know what other kind of oven you've got out there, but we've used this method. It seems to work in our kitchen oven just fine. I think some sources were concerned that people would confuse Celsius with Fahrenheit, maybe get the temperature wrong, cause fires, I guess, which I guess could happen if you just don't understand the difference between one and the other. Still, I know that paper burns at 451 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not sure about the melt-blown fabric that are in these masks, but I don't think there would be many fires, but certainly the integrity of the mask at really high temperatures would, would be affected and it certainly would deform the mask. Now, the same study that put out the information about dry heat disinfection evaluated ultraviolet germicidal irradiation, that's UVGI, and considered it also to be likely to be effective as well. They stopped short of recommending this method, however, because they didn't have the technology to measure viral particles on the mass after exposure at that particular medical center. I think that in the end, UVGI is probably the method that has the most promise with regards to disinfection of disposable face masks, quote-unquote, in times of extreme shortage. Ultraviolet light has long been considered pretty much lethal to viruses. It works by damaging viral DNA or RNA. Most viruses have either one or the other, but they don't have both. I don't know if you knew that. With a damaged genetic code, replication is much more difficult for these viruses, and most viruses wind up deactivated. I hesitate to say killed because it's really not certain whether viruses technically meet the definition of life at all. With commercial sanitizers and disinfectants in scarce supply as well, UV irradiation is being used more and more to sterilize PPE instruments and even entire rooms, heck, even entire airplanes and buses. There aren't a million university studies that prove that UV light specifically deactivates the pandemic's virus, the SARS-CoV-2. We do have evidence that UV light deactivates its relatives, however, SARS-CoV-1, that's Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, and MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, also coronaviruses. Now, since UVGI seems to be effective against the close relatives of SARS-CoV-2, the current pandemic virus, it's no surprise that the CDC endorses its use in the current pandemic, as well as against many other airborne viral particles. So this is not something that the CDC thinks is questionable science. It actually does work. But wait, not just any UV radiation will do. Sunlight contains different types of UV light. It has UVA, UVB, UVC. Now there's UVA. Let's start with that. The vast majority of UV radiation reaching the surface of the planet is UVA. It's uh, 95% as a matter of fact. It's capable of penetrating deeply into skin all the way down to your dermis, the deep layer of the skin, and is thought to be the main cause of age-related skin changes such as wrinkles, age spots, things like that. Then there's UVB. UVB comprises maybe about 5%, close to 5% at least, of UV radiation to which we're exposed here on the surface of the planet. Although it reaches only the top layers of skin, damage to the skin DNA actually occurs that could lead to, one, sunburns, of course, and also skin cancers. Now, protection from UVA and UVB radiation can be obtained just simply using sunblock, properly, of course, but using sunblock will do. UVA and UVB exposure 
as well as their effects can also occur with the use of tanning beds. So tanning beds are not a good thing. UVA and UVB are just not thought to be reliable enough, unfortunately, to sterilize masks or instruments, but UVC, now that is a different story. UVC radiation is a shorter, higher energy wavelength than UVA or UVB. It's good at damaging the genetic material of viruses, also of humans, unfortunately. While UVB may take hours to cause sunburn, UVC probably would take only seconds to do the same damage to you if you were exposed to that. Luckily, it's rare to encounter it because of the filtering capacity of our atmosphere's ozone layer. I bet some people are saying, oh, so that's what that's for. Yep, sure enough, that's what the ozone layer does. Filters out some harmful radiation. Now, although little natural UVC radiation reaches us, many artificial sources of UVC have become a method of choice for disinfection in a lot of places, factories, hospitals, even airplanes. Standalone UVC lamps are used to regularly sanitize entire rooms in a relatively short period of time. Not with you in them, of course, because that would be dangerous, but empty rooms that need to be sanitized. In some countries, buses actually are run through a UVC chamber for disinfection. The standalone lamps can be used to disinfect a hospital room, let's say, before a new patient arrives, uh, occupies a bed in, that may have been occupied previously by somebody that had an infection or had something that, con- that was contagious, or even the home sick room. Not everyone does this now in terms of hospitals or public spaces, things like that, and certainly not home sick rooms, but I'll bet that it'll be standard in the future. Okay, so let's say you don't have to sterilize an entire room. There are UVC wands and little tiny sterilization chambers, look like a toaster oven actually, that are available to treat instruments and maybe some personal protection equipment. I wrote a few years ago about a study in the Wilderness Medical Society Journal where they put instruments that were marinating in this nasty soup they made out of seven different disease-causing organisms. They then hung them up after cleaning them with chlorhexidine and passed a UVC wand over them for about 45 seconds. The researchers claimed 100% effectiveness in getting rid of the pathogens. I think that's amazing. With today's UVC wands, a a laptop keyboard only takes about 10 seconds to sanitize, and a mattress, an entire mattress, may take just up to about four minutes or so. And I'm sure that that will change as time goes on and technology gets better. UVC radiation is also a way to rid drinking water of certain microbes which are resistant to chlorine treatments, such as cryptosporidium. That's something else I've written about. That's a big problem in community swimming pools and some natural waterways, and indeed it is pretty resistant to chlorine. So indeed, you need to have something that's going to deal with some of those issues, and UVC radiation seems to be one of the items that will work. Of course, most hospitals haven't installed entire rooms of UVC light for sterilization. They still use autoclaves and, until recently, tossed any used item into the trash. Now, that was then. This is now. Although hospitals may not have UV chambers, used face masks are now being disinfected in a lot of these centers in biosafety cabinets, something that's not as unusual to have for a hospital lab. Smaller units are available for the home. I have one right here, and it disinfects certain items in about... 15 to 30 minutes. There are some risks, however. Be aware that the skin or eyes, if they're exposed, even for a short time to this light, may lead to cancer or cataracts in the future. Now, there's a study in the periodical Nature that recently described the type of UVC known as far UVC. Far UVC 
is an even shorter wavelength than regular UVC that so far appears to inactivate microbes without harming human skin. It can, however, go deep enough to eliminate bacteria and viruses on the skin and other surfaces. If they're on the skin and they're tiny, like bacteria and viruses are, the far UVC can get them, but don't seem to cause any damage to human cells. Now, one study on far UVC showed that it can kill airborne flu viruses. And further research agrees with the preliminary data that's out. Vehicles and other indoor environments may one day become far UVC chambers. UVC lamps that are currently on the market right now, the ones that you may have at home uh, and the ones that we have, don't use far UVC. They use UVC. Most germicidal UV lamps are mercury vapor lamps that emit energy at a wavelength of 253.7 nanometers. That's near the maximum germicidal level, which I think is uh, 270 nanometers. They may be used to irradiate air in ductwork. You may see them in ductwork to disinfect air before recirculation. And uh, sometimes they put them in very high ceilings to irradiate air at upper levels of rooms that don't get down all the way to where the people are. And that's accomplished with these UV lamps that they mount on the walls or suspend from the ceiling. If they're on the ceiling, the germicidal effect depends on air mixing between lower and upper levels of the room, and that occurs naturally via something called convection. As more advances are made, a lot of public spaces like hospitals, mass transit stations, things like that, may wind up having higher ceilings with far UVC technology attached. Now, can UVA or UVB work to disinfect items? The WHO recommends using direct sunlight for six to eight hours to disinfect water in a clear container. They do recommend that. And the UVC, UVA rather, in sunlight reacts with dissolved oxygen and water to produce hydrogen peroxide, that which is the act active ingredient in many household disinfectants. Now, without water, however, sunlight, although it still will help clear surfaces of microbes, it takes much longer. Now, there are some limitations to UVGI that you need to know. Despite its potential, far UV radi irradiation does not penetrate porous fabrics like bedding or upholstery. I guess they'll still use regular UVC for that. Ultraviolet irradiation is not yet recommended as a substitute for HEPA filtration or the local exhaustive air to the outside or negative pressure. These, these are better than just UVC filtration. And this is especially true, at least right now, if the air from the rooms of infected patients must recirculate to other areas of a medical facility. The use of both UV lamps and HEPA filtration in a single unit seems to offer really little additional benefit, but there are a lot of folks out there that are proponents of combining the two. Still, it has a lot of potential for both airborne virus deactivation and eliminating viruses on surfaces. This makes it very useful for COVID-19 or other respiratory infection type outbreaks. In the end, the effect varies though by the wavelength that's used, the temperature, the type of microbe that you're dealing with, the distance of the light from the object to be disinfected, even the presence of organic matter, maybe a film, a biofilm would affect it, uh, even areas that are shadowed, even dirty lamp tubes. So a lot of bugs to work out, but to me, I think it's the most promising technology. So it has a great deal of potential in a post-pandemic world. Expect to see a lot more of it as time goes on. And as we learn more about its effect on both germs and humans, 
Well, UVGI may stop some outbreaks right in their tracks, maybe save a lot of lives. There's always that chance, however, they may have some harmful effects that we don't yet know about. So more research is going to be needed to shed light on UVGI, ha ha ha, in the coming years. In other news, the Centers for Disease Control has actually tripled the number of symptoms that could be indicators of coronavirus. They've now added quite a few different symptoms that you see in a lot of, well, a lot of things. Muscle pain, headache, new loss of taste or smell. That, I guess, is a, an unusual one. But gosh, muscle pain and headache, who doesn't get that whenever they're sick with just about anything? The expanded list comes as researchers from around the world work to learn more about COVID-19. Uh, there have been, gosh, almost 3 million people worldwide that have been affected and certainly a lot in the United States, at least due to our better reporting, it seems like there's a lot more in the United States. 50,000 people have died so far from COVID-19. So the new symptoms are thought to appear 2 to 14 days after exposure to the virus. And they include, well, the, the original three symptoms, fever, cough, and shortness of breath or difficulty breathing. But now they're adding chills, which sort of goes with fever, I, I guess. Uh, repeated shaking with chills. Hmm, which sounds like it goes with chills, because <laughs> people do shake with chills. But muscle pain they added, headache they added, sore throat they added, and of course this unusual symptom of a loss of taste or smell. So these are one of those things. Now, emergency symptoms say about the same trouble breathing, persistent pain or pressure in the chest, confusion, inability to arouse, or, or cyanosis. That's the, when you have... Uh, bluish color on your face, your lips, or even your fingertips. So these are some of the things that you need to be concerned about, and that would be an emergency reason to get that person to the hospital as soon as possible. Uh, there have been other symptoms too, including some kind of a rash on toes, and that I don't know what to make of, but apparently there are a couple of people that have been identified with COVID-19 and also a rash, a sort of spotty rash on their toes, and <laughs> they're called COVID toes right now. So except for the loss of taste or smell, which occurs in about a quarter of the patient, it, these new symptoms they're adding just sort of seem to go along with pretty much any fever or any respiratory type infection. But there's something to keep an eye out for. Hey, some of you out there may have been reading about different studies that have been performed just in the last or week, or at least the results have been announced in the last week, that say that hydroxyquinolone and also remdesivir, the two different treatments that have been put forth as effective against COVID-19, are now considered to be not effective. As a matter of fact, the most recent one, this one was on remdesivir, a study from Gilead Sciences failed to show any speedy improvement of patients that had COVID-19 or no improvement in terms of their fatality rate. So this is something interesting because it came out as a result of a leak, not as an announcement by the company. And the leak was taken by the World Health Organization and it was publicized as a failure. So it's a pretty unusual situation to occur. The company itself actually said that they provided a draft manuscript to the World Health Organization who then inadvertently posted it on the website and, well, took it down as soon as the mistake was noticed. Uh, they say that the manuscript for the study is now undergoing peer review and they're waiting for a final version before 
who actually comments on it, which they actually have already commented. So I doubt that it's going to be much different. And that has come hard on the heels of some studies that are beginning to show that chloroquine may not be as effective as we thought it has been too. So it really has left us wondering what is going to be the actual treatment for this and can they make a vaccine or some other kind of therapy that would either prevent it or stop it in its tracks. And I'm beginning to see a lot of pessimism with regards to the medical experts with regards to whether this is going to be done anytime soon. So uh, I think we're going to have a longer period of time before we get back to normal. And that's going to be a new normal, not what we had before. So just be prepared to continue to hunker down or at least and maintain your social distancing. In other words, take responsibility for your own safety and the safety of your family. That's very important, especially dealing with older folks. The average age for people that ended up in the ICU was, I think, 63 in New York City. I'm not sure if that gels with what has happened in other countries. I heard that in some places that people are much younger. So this is something that we have to realize may be a condition we're going to have to live with for some time. You know, usually this time of year, we're talking about disasters like tornadoes, other kinds of early spring things. And we haven't done that for such a long time. I think that we have been sort of COVID-19, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I guess that's what most people really want to hear about. But we've had a number of tornadoes, for example, just in the last few weeks, and it killed, you know, dozens of people. And it is something that happens probably more often in the United States than just about anywhere else. And I think we need to really talk about different types of disasters here, not just pandemics. So about tornadoes. Tornadoes, everybody knows this is a that classic rotating column of air, sort of uh, dark cloud, like a cloud that somehow has touched the surface of the earth and uh, I guess starts with a thunderstorm, sometimes called a supercell. Now, from a distance, they usually appear like that dark funnel that you see all sorts of flying debris about it. But due to rainfall, you may not see it if it's anywhere near up close to you. Uh, tornadoes are also known as twisters. They, or winds can go all the way up to 300 miles an hour. They can travel for a number of miles before they peter out. They do peter out eventually. Uh, they can be accompanied by rain and hail, and they emit this incredible roaring sound that will remind you of a passing train in the early 1980s, I actually experienced this exact phenomenon when a tornado hit my house and knocked off roof tiles, probably just a glancing blow. But boy, oh boy, I don't ever want to experience another one. That is for sure. Injuries from tornadoes usually come as a result of trauma from all the flying debris that's carried around with it. All these strong winds can carry large objects, fling them around in a crazy manner. It's hard to believe in 1931, as a matter of fact, a train, 83 tons, was lifted and thrown 80 feet from the tracks. That, I think, is pretty amazing. Tornadoes are characterized by something called the Enhanced Fujita Scale from levels 0 to 5, and it sort of depends on the amount of damage that it causes. An F0, it, it goes from F0 to F5. F0 is basically considered to be light damage, just broken tree branches, maybe a little structural damage, maybe pretty much what happened to uh, our house back in the 1980s. 
uh, F1 would be moderate where windows are breaking and uh, mobile homes are overturning and F2 would be totally destroying trailers and causing some major structural damage to frame homes, for example, due to flying debris. Or, and some large trees actually may be snapped in half. And that's just an F2. An F3, that's a severe one. Roofs are torn from the houses, small frame homes completely destroyed, and most trees wind up snapped and uprooted. F4s, devastating, strong structural building damage, hard to believe, destroyed or lifted from the foundation, cars lifted and blown away. It's just amazing that these things actually can exist. And of course, an F5 would be causing large buildings to be lifted from foundations. I don't know if I've ever seen that, but boy, that is scary. And they do say there have been about 60 uh, F5s recorded and wind speeds there were between 260 miles per hour and 318 miles per hour. That is just amazing. Although some places may have sirens or other methods of warning you of approaching tornadoes, it's important to have a plan for your family to weather the storm. Face it, having a plan before a tornado approaches is probably the most likely way you'll survive the event. There's not a heck of a lot of notice. Kids should be taught where to find the medical kits and if they're mature enough, how to turn off gas and electricity. You want to make sure you give your loved ones experience in using things like fire extinguishers, maybe some training in the treatment of injuries would be very, very useful as well. So if you see a twister funnel, you got to take shelter immediately. If you live in a mobile home, however, that is not the kind of shelter you want to be in. So you got to leave. These are especially vulnerable to damage from the winds. And so find the nearest actual building that has a tornado shelter and an underground shelter is best. You may actually have your own underground shelter if you live in Tornado Alley, which is an area of the Southeast and Midwest. So consider putting together your own little underground shelter. It doesn't have to be as big as a bunker. It's not that you're going to use it to be living in after the zombie apocalypse. Maybe eight to 10 square feet per person would be enough for these purposes just to get you through the tornado. Despite this, make sure that even though it's going to be small, you got to have ventilation and you have to have at least some consideration for the special needs of those people that are going to be using the shelter. Now, if you don't have a shelter, you got to find a place in the house where family members can go if a tornado is heading that way. Basements, bathrooms, closets, any inside rooms on the first floor, those are the best options. Stay away from rooms that have windows because these could easily shatter from impact, not just from the wind, but due to flying debris. And for added protection, you might want to have a heavy, heavy object like a sturdy table or mattress, something like that, covering your body. That's going to be a little additional shield that you could have. Remember, you have to tell your entire family exactly what you want them to do in the case of a tornado. It's probably not going to be something that's going to be ingrained in their memory unless you practice it from time to time. Now, if you're in a car and you can drive to a shelter, you should do so. Although you may be hesitant to leave your vehicle, remember that they can be easily tossed by the winds. You might be safer if there's a culvert or some kind of protected area that's lower than the roadway itself. And if you're in town, leaving the car to enter a sturdy building, that's probably the most appropriate course of action. If there is no shelter, your car will protect you from some of the flying debris, I guess. So keep your seatbelt on, put your head down below the level of the windows, and cover yourself with something if you possibly can. Now, if you're caught outside when the tornado hits, you got to stay away from wooded areas if you can, because all these branches, other debris, become missiles. So an open field or ditch may be safer. If you lie down 
in a low spot on the ground that might give you some protection. Cover your head if at all possible, even if it's just with your hands. Of course, I would certainly not want to be out in the middle of the field when a tornado's around, but it's probably better than being in an area that has trees and other things that could sort of fly around and wind up hitting you. If you have enough time, you should fill up a bathtub with water just in case. Uh, you need a, a gallon of water per day for every member of your family. That's a minimum. I don't have to tell you that you should have food and medical supplies stored up. And you might consider always having maybe a whistle or something like that on your keychain. So in case you're ever buried under debris, that'll save you some energy. Then you'll be able to make noise and let people know that you are in need of help. Now, there is a tornado myth I would like to... Uh, just dispel here. A time-honored tornado myth states that if you open the windows, it's going to prevent the roof from being blown off. In truth, opening the windows during a twister is not a good idea. It could potentially be lethal. It's really a matter of simple physics. The roofs on most well-constructed houses are held together by these steel brackets. Uh, a lot of nails, two by four wood beams, trusses, things like that. The window is nothing more than just a quarter-inch pane of glass. So this is simply not true. So would you be ready if that tornado siren goes off? I'll tell you, you better have a plan of action or you might have an issue. You got to have a head start on weathering these, this kind of storm. So make sure that you know what to do. That's all I have for today. I thank you for listening to the one-man band here, the old geezer waiting for his goddess to come back. She'll be back soon and join us and actually make these podcast much more enjoyable for you but thanks for listening anyhow and we'll see you next time you've been listening to the doom and bloom hour with medical preparedness experts dr bones and nurse amy check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine gardening natural remedies medical supplies and lots of other good stuff Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.